name is Kwadnik Ji. I am the founder of the Little Saigon Historical Society here in uh, Westminster, California. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over. Thank you, Anji, for coming on. What does it mean to be Vietnamese to you nowadays? What it means to be Vietnamese is that we were uh, immigrants once. We were refugee uh, children coming here because of the end of a war. And uh, after that, uh, I think being Vietnamese is uh, we're very flexible people. Um, we're all over the globe as a result for, of uh, several conflicts in our country. And that uh, we, uh, as Vietnamese, we have assimilated, uh, I think, pretty well into uh, our, this, the community and the society that adopted us. Um, and that uh, over the years, I think we, because our, of our flexibility and our adaptability, we have added to the community that we've joined. Um, you know, nowadays, I think most uh, most uh, Americans have heard about the banh mi and the pho and the food and and the many people that have gone into uh, mainstream uh, jobs. Uh, within the uh, uh, rest of the community. And so uh, I think that's what it means to be Vietnamese is uh, being Vietnamese is we were once refugees, but we adapted and uh, we assimilated and uh, we've contributed, contributed to society. So I want to give our audience a little context about who you are and who your family is. Um, if you, if our audience types in Little Saigon and into the Wikipedia page, they'll begin to read the history of the founding of Little Saigon. And it has two men that are highlighted. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but it has uh, Frank Zhao, who built uh, the Asian Garden Mall, and your father, uh, Bakian Kwat. Uh, and this is very important for the conversation because uh, your father has been a pillar of the Little Saigon community from day one and has done a lot of business in Little Saigon, um, namely probably the first pharmacy uh, in Little Saigon, and has since expanded his footprint uh, in the business world. And you uh, are also um, somebody who has a practice that uh, that some of my friends have, have had their wives uh, deliver their kids uh, with you. Uh, so you've been around the Little Saigon community from day one. Can you describe what Little Saigon was in the early days when you arrived? Thank you for that uh, question, Ken. Um, yes, I, our family were the original group of 140, 150,000 that was able, that was fortunate enough to leave Vietnam um, by plane. Um, we were uh, the first group. Um, that left Vietnam in 1975. There are, I think, about 140 to 150,000 of us. And then when we came here, we were sponsored by my aunt, who had already was living here in the U.S. and was teaching at the, um, I think my aunt was teaching at the uh, Army Language Schools um, in Monterey. But uh, for her being here already, it was helpful. It was uh, She was able to sponsor us. 
And so when we first arrived to uh, we, uh, to the United States, uh, we went through the camps. In our case, instead of Camp Pendleton, we were at Port Chaffee. And then uh, my father was lucky enough to, uh, through a group of uh, friends of his who were going back to medical school uh, in Nebraska, um, there were a group of physicians that were in the Camp Pendleton, and they were, um, uh, during that time in the Midwest, there was a shortage of physicians in the small cities. And so they had a program where um, a city council of uh, this one small town, it's called Loop City uh, in Nebraska, they had sent a, a delegate of uh, their council uh, people to Camp Pendleton to interview uh, physicians uh, or, or people who have finished medical school in Vietnam and were practicing and now were here. So there, it was a, a group of uh, talent that they needed to uh, bring into their small town. So one of the physicians there is Dr. Huang Pham. And Dr. Pham Huang uh, is a good close friend of my dad. And he uh, uh, he went over to uh, Nebraska with a group of 30 other doctors uh, to start uh, retraining and, and with the idea of getting their license back. And, um, to, and then after that, they would serve the small towns in, in the Midwest. And uh, my dad, when he got here, he was he wanted to uh, work again as a pharmacist, but he didn't have a way of doing so. Um, and back in Vietnam, he was uh, he he worked for the government uh, uh, in the medical logistic uh, depot um, during the Vietnam War. The United States would supply Vietnam with lots of uh, medical supplies, and they needed someone to. Um, distribute that. And uh, when he graduated pharmacy school in Vietnam, he was assigned uh, the task of structuring a logistic depot to do that. But uh, when he got to the United States, of course, that was all gone. And so um, he was volunteering to work at a pharmacy um, selling candy uh, for a period of five or six months. And then he got a call from his um, his friend to come to California, to come to Nebraska. And so uh, after two years of uh, uh, retraining in, the, in pharmacy, and, and, and then he was able to regain his license. And so we came down to California in 1978. Um, at that time, uh, Southern California, Orange County, uh, there were a lot of uh, people coming out of Camp Pendleton. And um, so there was already a very small community of uh uh, restaurant. Uh, there, I think there was one restaurant that was on Bosa. Um, that might be another one. Uh, I think the one that was there is either a Guokung restaurant or something, but it was, it opened in 1970. It was a small mom and pop thing. And uh, Dr. Huang Pham had uh, already gone to California and he opened a practice across the street from what, from Westminster Mall today. Um, Westminster Mall and Golden West, if you're familiar with the uh, Westminster area, um, there was a little plaza across the street and uh, Dr. Pham opened a, a, uh, an office there. And so, but he said, he told my dad, you know, there, there isn't any other uh, Vietnamese speaking pharmacy in this area. And so if you're interested, um, you should go look for a place to, to open. Well, at that time, there was already a pharmacy next door to the Dr. Pham, and so we couldn't open there. 
And um, my mother had also finished her pharmacy program. Um, and so they both were looking for jobs. My, my father got a small loan. Um, and then from Westminster, in, from Bosa Street in Westminster, he started driving. Uh, he didn't want to be too far away from the doctor's office, but he started driving uh, eastward across the uh, Bosa and across a 405 freeway. Then he came down to Beach Boulevard and he got to Magnolia and Bosa. And there was already a large pharmacy there. Uh, pharmacy, I think, was called Danver Drugs. And then uh, he drove a little further and there was open space. So um, toward the right where his pharmacy is now at 9182 Bosa was a totally open space. There was no uh, shops there yet. And so uh, seeing that it was open, uh, he went in, he asked, and I, I still remember looking at some of the uh, contracts that he had signed back then. And it was like he had to put down a down payment. I think it cost him about thirty or $40,000 or something to start the pharmacy. But he started opening. Uh, he got the lease signed. He opened the pharmacy there. And then about a month later, um, he's heard some rumblings next door uh, at the space open that was uh, available next door. And it turned out that there was a, um, a, a man who and his family was opening a... Uh, a Vietnamese a Asian grocery uh, market next door. And so he thought, well, that was great because then that become a little community uh, for Vietnamese to come to, to come to. And then to the right of him is uh, Mr. Frank Zhao. Uh, mm -hmm. Frank Zhao is what you were saying is the developer of the, you know, uh, the Philippa. Well, uh, Frank Zhao then, and he become friends because they were next door to each other. And uh, after that, the pharmacy became busy because that was where a lot of the people would come to buy groceries next door uh, for their weekend. And then uh, what we did find was uh, across the street from our office, uh, from his, uh, his pharmacy, was actually a, a nursery. It was an open land. I remember I was uh, about 13 or 14 at the time. And I would come out and help them at the pharmacy. Would sweep the floor and put and and arrange the the, the medication on the on the shelf. Um, and across the street there was a nursery, and then there was also some open abandoned land. And uh, there was a big hangar. Now I know there was a hangar, and then because there used to be uh, an airport there, um, the Midway um, Midway City Airport. It was across the street. And to the right where the Fulokta is now used to be a, a large uh, machine shop, a, a tooling company. And um, so that was empty for, uh, that was, uh, it was a pretty much a manufacturing area. So Little Sa Saigon back in those days were um, sort of a, we call the bedroom community of, of, uh, of Orange County. Um, uh, and then after that, Every weekend, we start seeing a lot of enemies, uh, our, our community come to buy food. And what they were also doing is they were buying um, medicine to send home to their families in Vietnam. Um, a lot of times, this was uh, 1978, 79, 1980s. This is a time when Vietnam was really deep, dark, locked behind the Iron Curtain. Um, no medicine, you know, very little things were coming into the country aside from the Soviet bloc countries. And this is a time when uh, a lot of the families were separated. There, 
the the people that were here are either here by themselves, they're here uh, without their parents, and they're here without their wives and children. And so they were working very hard to send things back to once they were able to make contact with the Vietnamese uh, left behind, um, they were trying to find ways to support them. And one of the things that were badly sorely needed was medication. And so a lot of the uh, patients were going to their family doctor and asking for medicine, but not for themselves, but for their families back home. Well, you know, as you know, it's illegal. It's not legal at the time to write medication for people that are not here. And so um, after that, my dad uh, went to uh, Sacramento to ask for special permission to be able to sell medication with our prescription. But with a uh, the caveat is that it has to be it has to be um, sent directly outside the country, uh, and not they're not allowed to be taken outside of the pharmacy to you know uh, for consumption, but to be sent outside. So he was able to get a special dispensary from the um, from the medical from the pharmacy board to be to be allowed to sell those kind of make medication. So. People were buying antibiotics mostly uh, for their loved ones uh, back home. Um, some of their loved ones were placed in um, re-education camp. And so they were to get medication to them. Um, sometimes a lot of the families have to make long treks into the into the uh, into these camps and they would bring these medicine um, to them. But because of that program, then the community no longer was cheating the system instead of going to their doctor and telling them about symptoms that they don't have. And so it's to get medication for people in Vietnam. Now they can buy medication legally, but it has to be shipped out. So in order, so we were, then the pharmacy became like a little place where people come there, they would buy fabric because that was needed. Um, and they would buy things to put in the box so that then those boxes become you know, the things that they were sold with the with the medication is the the box of medication will go to the family, but the fabric and the electronics that they buy to put in there would be used to bribe people so that they can get that medication to their family, and so that was uh, uh, I was the lifeline uh, for the Vietnamese back then, and that's something that my dad was was always very proud of that he was able to do because he said that many years later after that, he had a man who came to his pharmacy and uh, and told him and brought a, uh, a, a vial of medication uh, with his name and, his, and the, la the pharmacy label on it. And it says, you know, if I, and he told my dad, if I ever were, it was able to escape uh, to leave Vietnam, escape the edu education camp, and and get be well. If I get to come to America, I would have to come and see this person because uh, it was the medicine he said helped save his life. Mm -hmm. And he and so uh, my dad, when he said it, <clears throat> not realizing, uh, my dad was very emotional about it. He said, "Well, I, you know, at least you know, I felt like I've done something that was helpful." And so so from this. Uh, the simple task of making it convenient and making it legal for our community to send medication to Vietnam. Uh, there's one person that was affected by it enough. They came to the United States and came to thank my dad. And 
so years later, you know, he told me that, and uh, he said he was very gratified by that. But the a lot of times, the things that he did was out of necessity. It was the uh, it was the changing times. Um, after, of course, after 1992, uh, when the lifting of the embargo, um, then there was no further need uh, for that. P Vietnam was able to import medication from different parts of the world. And so um, that task was was done. But um, Little Saigon back then, I think, had uh, uh, Orange County, maybe I think the numbers were like had 20 or 30,000 Vietnamese. Uh, in those days, now the numbers are above four hundred thousand in, in Orange County, but but that that was the nature of of our community at the very beginning of of uh, of Little Saigon, and of course um, the relationship between my father with Frank Zhao has been because they were next door neighbors to each other, and um, Frank was uh, was the was the business minded uh, real estate developer, and so my father went along. Uh, with a lot of the investments. Um, one of the things that they uh, did first was uh, opening, uh, the, the first project together was on Bolsa and Ward, which is Trung Tam Nguyen Wei, they call that. Um, it's still there. Uh, with, they sold it uh, many years ago, but that was the very first uh, plaza that they worked on together. And then after that, um, the uh, the Phulok Tao, the Asian Garden Mall, uh, which um, which uh, the mall next door to to uh, my office now, and then uh, the one across the street. So that I have photos of uh, of the development, uh, the period of, of groundbreaking and development of when they uh, bought the nursery, they developed the um, the old airport area uh, to build the two malls that sit directly out across the street from the Asian Garden Mall. Which is also named uh, with the same name, Phulok Tao, uh, but uh, because it doesn't have the three statues in the back, so many people may not know that it's also named Phulok Tao across the street as well. You know, you you got a front row seat to the development from an early age. Did you ever think that at one point that you would be the one that collects the history and documents it and put it up for the public to kind of view it? I've always been interested in in history, and so I've always interested in being able to tell stories. I'm not the greatest storyteller because uh, I tend my wife and family tells me that I tend to be too wordy when I describe stories, tell stories. Um, and so, and you probably would see that in <laughs> in our conversation today. But um, but I, I always like the stories. I always like where people come from. Um, you know, I always like to. Uh, uh, the origin of things, and so um, having the can be having the benefit of being right there, like you said in the front line, I I felt that it was sort of my responsibility to be able to to keep that story and 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 to retell it um, in photos and in videos. Um, I have been collecting. Um, videos, especially VHS videos. There were several events throughout the last uh, nearly 40 something years in our community. Uh, one of the uh, well remembered event is the 1989 um, high tech protests at um, Dangjung. 
uh, protest. And it just happens that it happened in, in our, our uh, in my father's plaza. Um, the uh, the plaza that's on uh, on Terrible Shard um, is some is a project that he went on his own as a uh, real estate developer without uh, Frank Zhao. Uh, he Mr. Frank Zhao was busy with another project, so he went to, on that on his own, and it was his baby. It was his development, and um, it just happens that he was the landlord during that time uh, when the uh, Dong Jung. Uh, uh, incident occurred. Uh, his tenants were uh, quite upset because they weren't making uh, money during the 53 days of protest, and uh, they were uh, there was possibly danger to the to the plaza because of there was like 15 20 thousand people out there at, at any one time, wow. and so you can imagine the the worry about property damage and so forth and and interruption to the business, but at the same time, um, you know, we had to protect. Uh, Mr. Zhang Jung's uh, uh, ACLU has rights to do that. And so he was kind of stuck in between uh, that. And, uh, you know, many people may not know that even at the end of the um, event, um, he was still involved in a lawsuit. Zhang uh, uh, Jung and his a ACLU lawyers uh, were still locked in a lawsuit against my dad for, um, for not uh, protecting his, his civil rights. Um, in the end, you know, fortunately it prevailed, but, you know, five years after that, then my dad one day came home and he said, oh, it's finally over now. I said, what's over? I said, well, you know, we, uh, we, we were in a lawsuit with Zheng Zhu and uh, now, but now it's over. And in the end, um, the ASLU lawyer came up to my dad and says, you know, I'm sorry, Dan, but, you know, this is what we had to do. And, and, uh, and so uh, we had to do our duty to to protect um, uh, his rights and my dad said no it's okay you know he he's he's not upset about that he, he knows that it's something that uh, that the attorneys have to do but um but since you know i i had all these uh materials um new, and newspaper clippings and my dad's also somebody who likes to archive things as well so he kept a lot of the things uh, from the last 40 years uh that was in the community and so I thought it was my responsibility. I felt responsible for um, for collecting them um, and and archiving them too, because it's, it's something that my dad, I think, out of respect for him, uh, the things that he likes to collect, li likes to keep, then I want to be able to um, take the that and do something with it um, for him. Uh, so I think uh, my involvement with the with the project of Little Saigon is mostly it's 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 something that I'm doing for my father. Now, when when did you have this idea to create the historical uh, society of Little Saigon? Um, it came out of I was involved with another project um, before this, and it was a project a group of friends of mine uh, wanted to do for the. Uh, the Army of the Republic of Vietnam, and they were uh, there. There was a group of about five or six of us that, uh, and uh, my my parents are not military. My family is not from the military background, but the other gentleman in this group were, is, and so they said that you know to to remember our parents uh, and and maybe it's part of their legacy. It's it's not so much about. Um, political but it's more about you know 
honoring a part of of our our parents' past. And so uh, we decided that we wanted to uh, put together a, a museum, a place to collect. And then we uh, we met with a a Vietnam War memorial memorabilia collector. And we thought, wow, you know, we there was a lot of things that we didn't know about the uh, Army of the Republic of Vietnam. Uh, we didn't realize that uh, there's a whole uh, world of uh, collectors out there that are very interested in everything uh, Arvin, A-R-V-N. Um, and so we thought it was neat to be able to provide a space, to provide a place for uh, uh, for people to come and look uh, for the older generation to be able to take their grandkids to go and say, you know, yeah, you know, I, I was in this uh, division or I was in the, the Air Force, I was in the Navy or the Army. And so that they're, uh, you know, that generation who are now in their 60s and 70s would be able to take their kids and their grandkids to come and say, yeah, you know, <clears throat> we're here in America is because of the end of the war. And I fought on the side that uh, did not win. And so we're here to, uh, but but this was part of my past. I want you to, you know, see it. I want to see um, where pictures of where I had gone to school in the military academy. This is the type of uniforms that I wore. And and so it's something for their children to to be proud of their uh, their parents or their grandparents uh, for their part in in the Civil War conflict. No, and let so me, let me ask yeah. you something about this because I feel like my generation, which is uh, a little bit younger than your generation, we, I was like the first wave to be born in the United States in 1975. My father served on the Arvin side, ARVN. My dad's two older brothers uh, all went through re-education my grandfather my paternal grandfather was um killed by the Viet Minh at the time in the 19 in 1945 so we have this long legacy in my family of people serving in the south vietnamese government uh on the military side or the sort of the police side uh, they were part of the phoenix program got sent to quantico for training with the cia so my my history leans heavy on that side. However, I am born here. Um, I don't have the same emotional ties to my father's uh, history, nor did my father really ever push that. He understood this is a very intellectual game um, of, 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 of really just survival, you know, on that level. I feel the disconnection from the pain and the suffering and the loss that the previous generation went through. I feel it. I understand it. I'm, I, I grew up with it. However, at this point in my life, being uh, in my late 40s, I kind of want to see a different cultural shift of bonding back with the motherland. Uh, so I've taken, you know, two, three trips a year for the last 20 years. My brother lives there for 20 years now. And I want to get your perspective on that. You know, how do we do this, this my generation and younger, in a respectful way where we can move forward and we can advance our cause as a the Vietnamese throughout the world as a one unit? Is that sort of too delusional to kind of want that? I think, 
I think it's trans. It's been transformational for me, um, having um, gotten deeply involved with the um, with the task of storytelling and through through memorabilia and through through stories. Um, I think my answer. Um, I'll get to your question soon. I think uh, is that yes, it is possible to be able to reach the point where um, we can have sort of where Vietnam is no longer a, a war, you know? Um, it's, um, I, and I think it, it takes a, a tincture of time. Um, certainly the years that has um, gone past uh, us uh, have started to transform us. Um, because when I was involved with the uh, Museum of the Republic, I realized that there were people who would come to the museum um, as part of being involved. I would sit there on the weekends and 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 as a docent and and to receive uh, visitors, and I would I would see people come with different uh, impression with different expectations. Um, I'm, I was surprised to see who would come and, and contribute their story or contribute their, um, you know, their artifacts. Um, I would, uh, there were times when people would send in their old helmets, their old letters, their old um, flight bags uh, to, uh, to, to, give, to, give to give to the museum to, so that they can share part of the story. Um, there's some that had kept, um, there's a story of an Air Force um, uh, helicopter pilot who was living out of state and has heard about um, our museum. And he has sent me a whole uh, duffel bag of, uh, of his stuff, of his things. And some of those things were his old medals, his um, a flight log of 1975. You know, the, his last flight out of Vietnam, how he landed on the midway, and uh, and you know, uh, details like that that are great for a collector and great for the museum and great for us to tell the story of the last days of of Saigon, of, it, of Saigon, right? Um, and then, I, but then I realized um, in the back of his. Um, commendation from Vietnam, because a lot of the uh, army uh, people who leave, they would take these things with them to prove that they were from the Republic. And so that it, it's just like part of their identification and, and, and so forth. But in the back of it, then I see, I read like things that, things that was happening in his life. Like in the front would be a, a commendation that was from nine, before 1975. Then after that, in the back, then I would see like little notes that he would write about you know, people's phone numbers, about you know his his children and so forth. And then I was thinking, these are his personal affects. Why why is he giving it to the museum? And then I realized, you know, people. I think they are done with that. In a way, it's a symbolic part of like letting go, letting go of 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 his own past, yeah. being able to move forward. Um. I see grandparents bring very proudly bring in their kids 
um, and point at out something in 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 the glass case that uh, says, yeah, that's that's a kind of uniform I used to wear. And then the kids, uh, they were interested, but I think they were interested in the fact that their grandfather used to do that. But then when it got to the point where, you know, then why are we here? How did the war end and so forth? And the conversation kind of like moved on to something else. Um, and so I realized that um, the war was uh, between the North and the South was lasted 20 years, you know, 1954, 1953, and it ended in 1975. This is 20 years. And so we've been at, in the United States now for more than 20 years. And I look back and see, you know, a decade has passed and two decades has passed. And so a lot of things have changed. And this is a very small part of our history. And so that's what um, brought me to the next story. And that's what made me interested in doing this history of Little Saigon, because it's actually the history that goes beyond uh, the war. It was how we um, develop, how we uh, change in since the war, since 75, you know, 75 to 95, that's 20 years there, and 95 and coming up soon. And so we're going to get up to about 40 years and, you know, and 50 years coming up pretty soon. And so I realized that, um, that that's how, that's why I wanted to tell the story of the development of Little Saigon. It's not just the business community, but it's, it's, it's our lives, it's our transformation um, after the end of the war and how we should go from here. And um I think it is an uh, issue of the, uh, uh, it, it really is one, one of the medication um, that we sometimes give to our patients is we tell them just give you give a tincture of time. Sometimes time is medicine in itself is because sometimes you can't, you can't overtreat it. You can't push it to, to fix it, uh, but you just let time uh, do its thing. And sometimes that's oftentimes that's all, that's all it's needed. So, Going back to your question earlier is uh, can can we be able to um, have a change um, in in the narrative of, of our community? And I think it is possible. Um, yeah. So we are at a different junction today, which is uh, close to 50 years later. And there is um, a very important document that you sent to me. Uh, I had heard about it before, but you really crystallized in my brain because I opened up the link and, and read it. And it is called the Nikwit 36, right? And what does Nikwit mean? My understanding is that it's it's kind of like a directive. Okay. So it's the Directive 36. Is Anybody can look it up online. Um, it's in Vietnamese, and I got to read the whole thing. And what it really says is uh, the Vietnamese government is setting out to bring every Vietnamese uh, around the world closer to each other, closer to the homeland, and we will do everything possible to make things easier for returning Vietnamese, whether it's buying land, property, adopting children. This document says a lot of things. Um, and I have a lot of questions about this document um, as it relates to the government and its sincerity 
what are your sentiments and what are your thoughts on the document itself? If you would feel the government of Vietnam was truly meaning or intentional about what they were saying, because it feels really heartfelt when you read it, you know, they just want to bring all the Vietnamese diaspora together to feel a connection with the homeland. They're going to do everything in their power to make and facilitate an ease of, of coming back to spend more time, to invest, to adopt children, whatever it is that we are worrying about here in the diaspora, they're addressing it by saying, you know, we want to open, have an open arms policy uh, to the Vietnamese returning to Vietnam. It seems very honest and it seems very appealing, but at the same time, is this just more propaganda to bring more economic value back to you know uh, a developing country? And then how is the Little Saigon community sort of reacting to this directive? Mm. I think when I was first introduced to it, um, it was introduced to me in, uh, given to me in a negative light. But if I were to eliminate all of the way that it was introduced to me and to read, uh, and I have read it, and I felt like it was uh, very logical, uh, very loving, yeah. very uh, uh, embracing of, uh, you know, our country, Vietnam has, uh, you know, we, we were colonized. And so it is during a time when, um, you know, with the new way of thinking about um, the colonial, 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 um, the colonial years, um, certainly um, it gives it a different uh, perspective now. Is uh, but looking at the Nghi Week by Masao, the uh, directive of thirty six by itself, it, it's a very it's a it's a directive where it's saying that you know. Your, your family, your mother, uh, in this case, your motherland or your fatherland says, you know, gather the flock, bring them, bring the people home. You know, we would be able to have final reconciliation and be able to, um, uh, the people that were benefiting um, from the unplanned or, or, or exodus, um, because back in the years in 1978-79, um, you know, I remember my parents would say, you know, we really miss our home. We really miss our our our, our country. We're here in, you know, um, the uh, foreign land, um, and it's uh, it's not our home. We really miss it. But you know, as Vietnamese. Uh, families go we always try to see the the bright light the the you know the in everything and so we say well just think of it as an opportunity for uh, all of these people to be able to de you how to go abroad for school because right. back That's in those days did. before yeah. 925 only the wealthy get to go abroad right and here you have like hundreds and thousands of people all of a sudden get sent abroad for school and so think of it that way. And then I remember thinking that I said, yeah, that's true. And I think that thinking like that made them feel better about their lonely existence here in a foreign land. And so, uh, but with that, then he said, okay, well, that makes sense that if you get a chance to do you help, you get a chance to learn, get education from the West, 
um, education for technology and and science. And then what do people in the past used to do is they they help their country. And so it's a logical next step. When you read uh, the Directive 36, is, is this a time for you to, to come back and help and to, to build the, the country? You, you, and, know, you know that the directive, when you read it in Vietnamese, this is how I felt. I felt like it was an 80-year-old father mm -hmm. who hasn't seen his children for 50 years. And the voice of the letter is very sincere. The, 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 the directive sounds very sincere. And it's like your father hasn't seen you in 50 years. And he's saying, please come back. We are doing everything in our control to make life easier. And we're not perfect. And we are not, we don't have it figured out yet. But the subtext reads like very honest and, you know, I think when a government puts out a directive like that, and it's so heartfelt, we can kind of surmise that, yeah, you guys probably won't get the execution right. You guys probably won't get the, the flow of the improvements down within our expectations as people from the West, but the heart and the soul of the message is very loud and clear. And this is what I struggle with daily when I think about the reintegration um, as an American-born kid uh, with Vietnamese roots to my to my mother to my motherland, and it tears me up inside. And that's why we're here together today to discuss this sort of this emotional ripping apart of you know um, a people of my sort of viewpoint of we want to be one. We want to step out of an airport and feel proud to be part of the tapestry of the Vietnamese throughout the world, throughout the history of Vietnam's thousand years. We want to be included in the title or the branding of being a Vietnamese person, whether they're in Vietnam or the US or Germany, it doesn't matter. I want that. I work hard to have that unity and I want to kind of Bakwa is a heavy word, but it's sort of like in the spirit of a prodigal son's son, which is my father's the prodigal son, returning back to the roots. I, I want to see this happen so badly. I think um, there are, uh, unfortunately, uh, there's different layers and there's reasons why there are some people that still want to hang on to the not wanting to give forgive or not not wanting to um to let go like you or or and you know out of respect for the people that had suffered uh mortally um, like they would have uh, family members who had uh, maybe family members who had died in the war or in the aftermath during the um, incarceration. And I, I think certainly um, when you mentioned that it's like an 80 year old father calling the children to back, back home, of course, you know, there will be there will be some kids that were not did not feel like they were treated well. Mm -hmm. um you know there's some kids that 
were, were rebels or what were some kids that were they felt they were slighted by the mistakes of their 80 year old father because you know we're not all perfect and so i i believe that there are a and especially it's concentrated in our Vietnamese diaspora because they were the one that had to leave under circumstances that were against their control or against their, you know, it's because if by staying, uh, they, were, they were concerned that there would be, um, there would be in dire straits. And so, and, and some were, some suffered. And so, um, because it is a concentrated community um, of like-mindedness, I think that's why um, it takes longer. Um, and of course, when there are when there had been missteps by the father or missteps by the parent or country, of uh, maybe missteps in treating their portion of their population the wrong way, um, I think. Um, in respect of uh, at the things that leading up to the end of the Vietnam War, um, there there's two sides to the conflict, and I think afterwards there were definitely opportunities to have true reconciliation. You know, um, had had the winning side uh, came in and and used the talent of the people in the South to rebuild the country uh, instead of ostracizing them and taking them away from their... I think those are those are missteps um, that have further, uh, instead of uh, reconciliation and unification, it became, uh, you know, uh, some people felt that they were punished uh, for really... Um, not do anything bad, but just be having a different opinion, um, different uh, opinion on how the country should be governed or the system the country should be governed, or they just may have followed, uh, you know, uh, different ideas. You know, sometimes you commit to following something, and even if you find that you're, it's no longer correct, you still follow that. And, you know, there's different reasons why people follow a certain um, ideology. But as a result, I think it... Uh, these missteps needs to be um, settled because I know I think in the United States we're still talking about um, re uh, reparations for missteps of the United States toward uh, the African American community. Um, there were talked about uh, reparations for uh, the Japanese American community um, for government missteps. Yeah, and so. These these actions from a government or father um, that wants the children back, I think there are some things that need to be uh, addressed. And um, I know that, of course, uh, with time, with time, um, some people uh, will forget. Some people will uh, will no longer hold on grudges or hold memories or their, their parents have passed on, the people that are anger, angry, they've passed on. And so that's why the tincture of time is, is one way. Uh, but uh, the other way is to, to recognize saying that, yes, you know, these things, uh, we were wrong and uh, we would like you to come back. And, but, and we will do uh, want these things to to help reconcile those things, those uh, those issues, 
one i know that um you know how we're uh, vietnamese is sort of kind of like a confusion community confusion community too um in our culture we respect our elders we respect uh, our uh, uh, people who relate to us have passed on so we we you know we we honor their gravesite. We honor their um, their memory through uh, you know yearly um, memorials and things like that. And so, one of the missteps I think um, is the uh, not taking care of the military uh, cemeteries. I think those are that's one of the things that I believe there's there's already steps toward uh, changing that. But I think um, um, being able to do some things to to repair that rift is is to um, you know um, take care of the dead, sort of. Yeah, I mean that, that was a big deal. That was a big deal uh, for the in the '90s with John McCain and um, Bill Clinton trying to come back and and, and figure out how to reestablish relations. Um, the honoring of the dead and the fallen uh, was not really tended to correctly. Um, but I, I think overall, it's like having an analogy of an 80-year-old father is kind of complicated because there's many voices to that father. It's not just one voice. It's not just one father kind of with his heart talking to his children to come back hmm. within the within the mind of the father or the mind of the government there are many different dissenting voices on how things should be handled and i think the nuance of that is sort of lost in our community sometimes uh, here in the diaspora because if we don't kind of understand that there are so many factions in a government then we just kind of roll our eyes and just discount you know a letter or a directive that's written like that just as in the little saigon community in, in america little saigons throughout the the country there are so many different dissenting voices as well yes um i think you cannot fault um fault an entire entity for individuals right individuals right. decisions and um uh, and going back to uh, the idea that um earning a skill set when you get to a chance to go abroad and learn new skill set then be bringing that skill set back home to improve your community uh your old community your 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 you know your ancestral land your ancestral community that's that's uh of course not every child who goes abroad to school will always come back to do that but being able to come back and help the community i think that's a very noble ideal and i think the um the the directive 36 in, uh, wants to encourage that is to say that look you know we we value your skill we value your contribution we value your um your work and if you want to uh come and and if you have a connection still to your homeland you want you come and and help to improve it and to uh, be a part of the the pride of, of our people, 
then uh, then we welcome you to do so. Um, I think there's an increasing percentage of people, of younger uh, generation people, um, who will do that. And, um, and I don't think it's healthy to keep instilling in their instilling the the conflict is 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 because i think uh, it has to be where you come and you want to embrace and 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 do charity you know you there's people that go come back uh, and there's increasing groups of people that are coming back to do charity to help um, because there are certain still although the country is improved economically and financially and the livelihood of most people is probably better than 20 years ago, but there's still work to be done. And certainly um, uh, there's certainly, there's a lot of things that, uh, you know, the expat community can do um, to, to come and help. But also by coming back, it's uh, it, it forms your roots. Um, I heard a really good um, quote once. It's called, the best thing that you can do for uh, your children or the next generation is to give them roots and wings. And simple as it is, it seems makes a lot of sense is you give them a sense of where they come from. And then you give them a skill set to, to, to fly, to be able to do things, to, to get better than yourself. Vietnamese, we have... Uh, right mm -hmm. and then and of course then like uh, you know when you drink water you remember where it comes from um you know mm -hmm. things like that that's that's uh things that are part of our Vietnamese psyche and um I think the political conflict is very superficial it's uh in Looking back at our history, our our conflict with each other is, I think, it's external. I mean, um, we just wanted Vietnam for ourselves, you know, govern, Vietnam governed by Vietnamese. And at that time, of course, there's different people who have ideas on how it should be, you know, what kind of political structure it should be. Should, should it continue with a monarchy? Should it continue with socialism, communism, or the Western-style uh, democracy? But, you know, at that time, if we start looking back at the history, you know, there's we got to have the Cold War going on. All of a sudden, we're uh, kind of pulled into that Cold War. Um, we had to split up our families, you know, 1954, a lot of people from the North had to move to the South. And of course, there's always going to be bad actors and bad players, bad politicians within our government. But, you know, as a whole, you know, um, it's the people, you know, it, it's the, yeah. it's the family that lives in the villages that you want to, you want to be able to provide for that family so their kids can, can better themselves and get out from, from poverty. And you want to do something to to be able to help those people. So you don't think about that you when you're doing something, you're gonna enrich the wealthy. No, you the wealthy is already wealthy in a, in any society. You're you're not gonna enrich them anymore. But what you want to do is you want to be able to give some help to the really poor people. And those people, little things really help them. So have you, have you been to Vietnam? The last time I got to go was uh, 1995. Oh, it's wow. been a long time. Why, job, why, why have you why have you not gone back more? Um, I've been a really busy at my work. 
um, as a solo OBGYN, I can't really, you know, um, if I leave more than 12, you can't you go to Vietnam. I like to stay longer, at least two weeks, but I've never t- taken more longer vacation, more than 10 days. Mm. And with my children being small, it's, uh, it was, we were, it, we thought it was hard for them to, to travel for that far. And, and they will only be able to travel in the summer. And so it was too hot. Uh, but we do have in our plan that are now that our children is old enough to be able to appreciate their roots. Um, and we will take them back um, to, to see, to see it. Yeah. Yeah. I look forward to hearing your thoughts on that uh, when you come back one day, you know, today we got into a lot of topics that, uh, that really helped me and I hope it helped the audience sort of see the, progress that's being made both in Vietnam and in Little Saigon. And I encourage um, any of the audience who visit Little Saigon to stop by um, the museums or uh, any sort of landmark that we just described. Uh, And the museums open, uh, I assume, right? Yes. um, I I don't, I'm not a part of that project anymore, but I know that they are still work, uh, they're still open on the weekends for limited hours for to visit. Um, there are another group of friends of mine, we uh, did a, uh, a project called Pop-Up Museums. And so the subject is not military, but it's like things that are from 19, before 1935, like, um, uh, interest in literature before 75, um, interested in uh, street names in, of, uh, hmm. of Saigon. You know, our, our Saigon has changed names so many times. And so there's actually uh, books about uh, the names uh, of with French names on it. Then after the Republic, then has Republic names after it. Then now change, names have changed to uh, post, not 75 names. And so it's, it's you know, things like that, that, that interests in some people. And so we do pop-ups. We only had two pop-ups, but the pandemic kind of slowed us down. So, so you know, Little Saigon's Historic Society, right now the work is mostly is to archive and to, to co- digitalize uh, uh, documents and, and videotapes um and uh, and to just keeping them uh for later on if we have a physical space we may be able to 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 provide something like that for the community to to share well thank you so much Anji, for all of the work that you do and i know the cities um westminster and all of these cities recognize the work that you do the volunteering and all the time that you put in to really build the community you're one of the pillars of the Little Saigon community here in Southern California. Thank you for all of that service and thank you for coming on today. Thank you, Ken. Thank you for the opportunity to share my thoughts. Of course. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts.